Good day, beautiful people. We want to thank the dedicated listeners and viewers of Kiko's Freethinkers Forum. We have a current audience outreach of 64 different countries, including all 50 states. Kiko's Freethinkers Forum is available on most podcasting platforms, so subscribe to your podcasting platform of choice and our official YouTube video channel. Consider subscribing and telling your friends and family. And remember, you can't unthink free thought. Good afternoon, beautiful people. Welcome to another episode of Kiko's Freethinkers Forum. I have in the presence of me a very special guest. His name is Carlos Garrido, and he is a co-founder of the Midwestern Marx Institute. He is currently a philosophy PhD student at, the U- at Southern Illinois University in Carbondale, Illinois, and he is well-published. Um, he's done a lot of journalistic um, work. He's been on Russia television. And um, we're going to talk a little bit about his background before we transition into his newest publication, which is The Purity Fetish and the Crisis of Western Marxism, which was published this year, I believe. But I just want to say, Carlos, welcome to the show, and we appreciate your acceptance of our invitation. Thank you so much for having me on. I'm very happy to be here. Yes, uh, we just talked a little bit before we got on the air, and I definitely follow people on YouTube. I'm very particular about who I invite. And I, I was pretty stoked when you accepted the invitation um, so enthusiastically. That means a lot to the forum because I know we're going to have a great dialogue today and we have an introduction of different audiences. But before we get started and we talk some about Carlos's book and his background, I wanted to give a plug into the pod and just say that it's really grown a lot since last year when we launched June of 2022. We have an outreach of 64 different countries. So we have about a third of our listenership and viewership outside the United States. And that's kind of the point. We wanted to make this an international community forum uh, because I think that's an area, and I'm going to talk to Carlos about this. There's a blind spot, I think, in the political psyche of the United States. And I think that's geopolitics. And um, reading his book, um, The Purity Fetish, talks it touches on that a lot about um, kind of this ignorance of people in the United States, especially when it comes to affairs outside of the country. I'm sure we'll talk about that some. But um, I just want to say keep um, the listenership going, the viewership. We're not really in it for the money here. We're really here to foster ideas of communication and to not ostracize complete um, blocks of individuals across the country because of a lot of the propaganda that's spread when it comes to um, you can't talk to these people, these people. We don't see that in the forum. We see everyone um, that has potential. We, um, we see the potential in free thought. We see the potential in other areas and Today, we're going to talk some about revolutionary potential. Um, but I guess I want to ask you, Carlos, uh, what is your background exactly? Like, how do you even get into um, this whole idea of Marxism, socialism? Like, how was your upbringing? Yeah, um, well, I, I guess it's kind of unique because if I told you I'm a Cuban, born in Cuba, raised in Miami, you would expect me to be super anti-communist, right? Um, but it was it's actually, of course, the opposite. Uh, I had the uh, the pleasure of being raised in a, in a household of, of Cuban parents who left because they were against communism or, or the government in Cuba, but because it was the special period, things were difficult, the U.S. was strangling Cuba to the point where caloric intake dropped by half, 
And of course, the Soviet Union had had fallen for a variety of reasons. You know, we can't get to that here, but um, there was, of course, internal contradictions and a lot of external pressure at play in hybrid warfare against uh, the world's first long-lasting worker state. And uh, a lot of people uh, fled Cuba in that period, not necessarily because of how they felt about socialism, but because of the difficulties. And, you know, it got to a point where most of your family leaves the country and and you just say, you know, whatever, let me uh, go uh, where my family's at. And that was kind of the reality of my parents. So I grew up in a household that, like, whenever I tried to bring some of the cultural uh, music that reggaeton that was anti-Cuba into the house, they were like, take that shit off. That's, <laughs> that's stupid as hell. Um, and, I, you know, we grew up critical of all the wars of empire. And um, so it was a different setting. Um, I had a, my grandpa was someone that, um, he was a seminarian uh, when the Cuban Revolution took place, and he ended up leaving the church to work on the brigades that the party was doing specifically in the rural regions of the country that didn't have um, access to, um, you know, health care or access to education. And he was working in, in specifically the field of education, creating uh, schools in the country. Um so I grew up with stories like that of, of, of people going out into brigades and, you know, just getting massacred by the remnants of the Batista forces that were, of course, U.S. backed. And that's what people don't talk about when they they talk about the, uh, you know, the, the imprisonment of political prisoners. They talk about it so abstractly. And what they forget is the, the crimes that, that these goons literally participated in on behest of uh, U.S. backed uh, tyrannical government in Cuba that was strangling Cubans, making the vast majority of Cubans live in immiseration, um, while a small amount lived very richly, serving their neocolonial uh, overlords and masters. Um, so I grew up with those stories. Um, but I also, you know, you're, you're a kid, you're not super politically conscious. And there was just so many things I didn't understand. We'd go to the beach or something in South Florida and you know, you see these massive skyscraper buildings. Uh, you know, a lot of the rooms are empty. You could just tell. And then you look down in the street and you see homeless people. And you're like, what? What is this? What's what's going on here? This doesn't make much sense. Why are there so many empty rooms and so many homeless people, people unhoused around these areas? Um, and what particularly shocked me was when uh, my mother had my little sister. She had developed fibrones within her and the doctors told her, you know, you either you either operate those and, you know, secure yourself a long lasting life or uh, you roll with it. And, uh, you know, you never know what can happen. If those pop, you can you can die. And my mom was forced to make this calculation of do I operate and go into debt slavery? And, you know, God knows how that's going to end up bleeding into uh, my family even after I'm gone. Uh, but or or do I just roll with it? And, and she decided to roll with it. Thankfully, nothing has happened. But that was another decision at the personal level that just it sort of broke my everydayness. It was what in philosophy you call an event, something that just breaks uh, the quotidian character of one's life, the everydayness. And it forces you to reflect. And I never had an answer for it um, until Bernie Sanders 2016 campaign came around and, and started talking about the influence private insurance companies and the commodification of, of the healthcare industry and, um, you know, the role of profit 
getting in the way of, of doing something that is central to medicine. That you know, if you go back to the Hippocratic Oath, the goal of medicine should be not only to treat the sick, but to attack the conditions that produce sickness. And uh, in many ways, like the real goal of medicine is almost auto-abolitional. Like this is something I've developed in some of my recent writings. Like if medicine works well, it destroys the conditions that makes medicine itself necessary. And if you look back at the French Revolution, there was Girondist sort of utopian socialist thinkers that thought, well, if we abolish poverty, poverty is connected to illnesses. If we abolish illnesses, we won't need medicine. Um, but it's the opposite. When medicine is commodified and its whole purpose is its bottom line is just profit and you know health is a latent effect, it it seeks to proliferate itself. The more medicine you have to provide, the more profit that that is to be made. So that started uh, helping me make sense of things that uh, sort of overlaps with the period that I'm entering into undergrad. I had the pleasure of having my counselors and the atmosphere I was in um, be one where. Uh, they were all socialists, democratic socialists of, of of different sorts. One of them was a communist, very pro-China, pro-actually existing socialism. So I found myself uh, taking most of my classes in philosophy, sociology, and political science with people that were Marxists, and most importantly, I think, that were active in organizing their community. So very early on, I got uh, involved with the local DSA there, did a lot of organizing work. Um, learned a lot, was obviously reading a lot of my Marx, Engels, Lenin, um, and other traditions, traditions of of U.S. socialism, and eventually the 2020 campaign comes around, and I, along with Eddie, who ended up founding the Midwestern Marx Institute with me later on, we kind of spearhead the the campaigns, at least in the university and, and, and in the community for, for Bernie Sanders, and uh, we learned a whole lot. There was a whole lot of assumptions that we had came uh, into organizing with, specifically about um, Trump workers. You know, I had this image coming out of South Florida, a more cosmopolitan site, that, you know, the rural Midwest and Trump workers were all just these racist fascists that um, there's no way of, of establishing any connection or bringing them anywhere. They're just an enemy, you know, back to the horribles. And as we knocked, you know, literally thousands of doors and spoke with thousands of these people, we uh, we realized how wrong those assumptions were that a lot of these people voted for Trump because uh, not because of the ugly you know, statements about immigrants and stuff like that, but in spite of that, like what they liked was the idea that he was an outsider or presented himself as an outsider, presented himself as someone who was going to drain the swamp and attack the deep state and the anti-war and at some point he even promised uh, something like a Medicare for all. And uh, he didn't, you know, he obviously didn't fulfill any of those promises, but at least the rhetoric was different from the status quo. And that's what they liked. And, you know, as a Marxist, I, I was like, there's so much potential here. You know, these are people that are already critical of the media. They're looking at the media and they're saying it's fake news. And it was so easy just to say, well, if MSNBC and CNN and all of these are fake news, just extend the analysis. Let's see what is fake news about Fox News? Let's see what's fake news about how, um, you know, they teach us about history, how they teach us about U.S. history, about the history of socialist countries. So it ended up being the case of something around like 70 to 80 percent of the people that were in our central organizing committee were previous Trump folks mm-hmm. um, who twisted and went with Bernie and not just Bernie, who ended up eventually becoming a Marxist of, of the variety 
um, that that we are. And it was that whole condition, some of the experiences that we felt in various parts of the left that prompted us to to uh, begin the, the Midwestern Marx Institute, uh, which was started in 2020. And we had three central critiques of the left that we felt like, you know, we had to um, do something in order to hopefully cir circumvent those uh, uh, central flaws. The first one was, as you hinted at, you know, its views on geopolitics. Uh, it's 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 been deeply anti-communist through and through. Since 1917, it's done nothing but tout from the so-called left critiques of actually existing socialism, and not even socialist countries, countries that have been fighting against neocolonialism. Like you look back at people like Adorno and Korkheimer from the Frankfurt School, the comments that they're making about uh, Nasser's Egypt, which wasn't, you know, a, a Marxist uh, country, but was a neocolonial, anti-neocolonial uh, government that was um, investing in its people, living, uh, raising its people's living standards. They're calling these governments fascists. You know, they were endorsing the war in Vietnam. And that's not all of them, but there's a general tendency. If there's something that uh, ties all of this called Western Marxism um, or U.S. Uh, Marxism, a specific trend of it, uh, is is that anti-communist stance. And we, we felt that that was so completely ridiculous, especially since we've been so propagandized by McCarthyism and anti-communist slanders that to go to our working class and say, you got to fight for socialism, but everything they've told you about socialism and how evil it is and how it produces genocides and poverty and all of this shit, everything, all of that is true. We condemn all of that, but you got to fight for socialism. You know, <laughs> workers got to be pretty darn stupid to say, yeah, okay, I'll fight for this thing that has, according to you, always failed, but you know, now because you're the virtuous West, the virtuous exceptional Americans, now it's going to actually succeed, even though it's failed, according to you, all over the global South. Um, so that was one of the central things. And, you know, as you know, that's, uh, I end up formulating that as the, the first form of, of the purity fetish, because socialism doesn't, these socialist countries don't measure up to their idea, their pure idea of what socialism ought to be. They just condemn it outright. Um, and I make the argument on the basis of my background in philosophy that um, they might call themselves Marxists, but there's nothing anywhere near to the Marxist worldview of dialectical materialism at play here, because they're looking at things statically. They're unable to see the role of contradictions in the movement of history. They're unable to see things from uh, the perspective of the larger whole of totalities and and they're unable to see things in their movement. And that's the essence of, of dialectics, seeing things in their movement in their interconnections from the perspective of the social totalities and uh, cognizant of the contradictions that are always at play necessarily in everything, in nature, human thinking, and in human societies and their development. So that was one of the first um, critiques. Another one that we had was, again, how they see Trump workers. Um, and here the purity fetish applied very easily. They're too impure to organize. Um, they're too backwards to organize. And I, I felt this was a tremendous mistake, as I, as I just explained, you know, the success that we had organizing them was kind of the, you know, the, the pudding uh, that showed to me in the eating of it that, you know, these assumptions were, were baseless. And they were just completely backwards from the understanding that the Marxist tradition has brought forth, even if these people were uh, backwards or reactionary as they're being painted, doesn't matter. Don't you still have to go to them? 
and bring them out of those backward ideas and mm -hmm. elevate their consciousness, as, as the Leninist tradition would say. If, if you don't do that, where are they going to go? They're just going to go towards, you know, the, the actual reactionaries, the reactionaries that have the backing of, you know, the, the uh, most advanced sectors of finance capital behind them. And we can't let that happen. In many ways, every successful uh, rise of, of, of fascism has always been, as, you know, the, the essayist and philosopher uh, Walter Benjamin used to say, um, a manifestation of a failed socialist revolution. Fascism only rises because we weren't successful in preventing uh, that reaction from capital and in capitalizing uh, on the crisis that's at play and mobilizing and organizing workers. So um, the purity fighters was very easy uh, to see there. These people were too impure to organize, therefore we won't organize them. Um, you end up with a communism that's really just preaching to the choir. You only talk to people you already agree with. And the last one that, uh, the last uh, central criticism that I had, this one was more specifically of the of the communists and uh, left. The previous two were uh, primarily seen in the democratic socialist uh, movement, especially that socialism conference in 2019 that besides all of the goofy stuff that comes out of it, you also get statements like Nicaragua is a totalitarian regime in <laughs> Cuba and China. It's like, why, why, why call yourself a socialist? But uh, that's besides the point. The last uh, uh, point was how they look at U.S. history. They're deeply grounded in what some scholars have called the blind spot. Um, they only see the history of struggle from the standpoint of the white worker. Um, and when they do this, um, they end up with very bombastic statements such as, you know, the U.S. could be reduced to settler colonialism, imperialism, slavery, exploitation, and, and all these horrible things. And what that misses, again, in a very non-dialectical way, unable to see the contradictions at play in U.S. history and, and the various periods and the various changes that have occurred, what that misses is this beautiful tradition of struggle that we have from the beginning, you know, um, it misses the positive elements that were at play in 1776. Um, it misses the fact that 1865 uh, up to 1876, the period from the Civil War to Reconstruction, was a tremendously revolutionary period that was led by what Du Bois called the Black proletariat, um, the enslaved proletariat, uh, which won the war to a general strike. And as a war that instead of reading it just as a civil war, we should read it as the fulfillment of the first revolution in the form of a second uh, American revolution, which inaugurated, as Du Bois shows in many Southern states, a dictatorship of the proletariat, where the Freedmen's Bureaus were basically in control and had the backing of the federal uh, army um, to squash all of the reactionaries at play. And, you know, this falls thanks to a counter-revolution of property in 1876, uh, where the old planter class and the new rising imperialist bourgeoisie in the North realizes that it no longer has overlapping interests with uh, the black proletariat and, and the poor Southern whites and ends up siding again with the planter and, and, and does all of this. But, you know, we don't talk about this. You know, today we have countless events around the Paris Commune, uh, which happened after these revolutions, which lasted a hell of a lot less than these lasted just a few months. And we have these great events on the Paris Commune, and we should, but where are the events on Reconstruction? Where are the events on the this dictatorships of the proletariat that were established in the U.S. South and led 
by the black proletariat. There's not many events. And so the same thing you have after that, the civil rights movement, tremendously revolutionary working class grounded movement that undid uh, in many ways, at least from the standpoint of, of, of the legal institutions, uh, a lot of the explicit fascism that was inaugurated following the counter-revolution of 1876. It's a tremendously beautiful movement that radically changed the constitution of, of, of the, the general, not the actual document, but the constitution of the country and the social consciousness of people. We can't have the uprisings that we had in 2020 after the brutal mur murder of George Floyd. Now, we couldn't have had that in 1960. I mean, they killed King and, and we, we didn't have that, but we were able to see when they killed George Floyd that they killed one of us. That's a tremendous change in the social consciousness of the American people. And that's not to say that races don't exist and that racist institutions aren't still here. Of course they are. But the conditions that we have today for fighting together as a class united are better than they've ever been. And that's thanks to the civil rights revolution. Um, and a lot of the left doesn't see this. So they look back at U.S. history, they reduce it to the bad stuff, and then they just reject, uh, they, they participate in this phenomenon that, you know, the, the great communist Georgi Dimitrov called national nihilism. Um, their national past, they reduce it to, to nothing. There's nothing that we can take from there. Um, and that's horrific because socialism is in every instance the sort of general universal that has to be applied in accordance with the particular conditions and history of the people that have won the struggle for political power. This just goes back again to how dialectics looks at the questions of universals. We reject this tradition that comes from Western philosophy that says that universals is that which is the same in every uh, moment and in, every, uh, in all times and in all places. That's an abstract, empty universal. What makes a universal universal is its ability to reapply itself in a different form, in a different particular content. And you see socialism as a form of universal that takes different characteristics throughout history. Russian Soviet communism looked different than Chinese communism, which they called socialism with Chinese characteristics. And it looks different than, than socialism in Cuba, which goes back to Jose Martí and this great tradition, then Bolivarian socialism in Venezuela and indigenous socialism in Bolivia. It always has to adapt to particular characteristics. And when we look at our past and we say no, when we participate in this national nihilism that's grounded on the purity fetish, on, on the fact that because it's not pure, I'm going to reject it, we forego any capacity uh, to, one, connect with our people, connect with a positive history of struggle that works as a historical legs for our movement forward, and two, you know, who, what working class person are you going to organize if you're telling them that socialism means like death to America or, <laughs> or, or these bombastic slogans that you hear people specifically online, terminally online uh, say? Um, so these are deep flaws that uh, I make the argument that are grounded in a poverty of outlook. People that are calling themselves Marxists but are not working from within the Marxist outlook of dialectical materialism. And not only does it affect their ability to understand the world correctly, like they can't uh, grasp truth through this, but it also makes them revolutionarily futile. And it's not a coincidence that the same group of people that have spent their whole life criticizing uh, socialism abroad have not been able to produce anything in our country. The traditions that have been the most advanced in our history of class struggles, which in my view has been the Black Freedom Movement, 
has been completely divorced from those traditions. In many ways, you look back at what like the Trotskyites were saying around the civil rights movement, they were criticizing King. <laughs> they were criticizing him as a reformer, as too soft, as not going far enough. And you look back at the statistics at that time, who was getting in prison more than King? Who did the state fear more than King? No one. So this is, uh, it, it not only prevents us from understanding the world correctly, but it prevents us from changing it. And what we're, what I'm trying to do in this book, which is in many ways a collective um, enterprise that uh, is, is the fruit of all these discussions that I've been able to have over the last few years with the folks at the Institute and, and the friends of the Institute, it puts forward this thesis for returning to a dialectical materialist analysis, not only to understand things better, but to give us a better opportunity at organizing our class and fighting for our conquest of political power, fighting for socialism, and for dismantling the U.S. empire, which is the biggest hindrance in the struggle of our brothers and sisters abroad. Without the U.S. empire, the struggles for socialism abroad would be 95% uh, easier because 95% of what they fight against is the hybrid warfare that the U.S. is waging against them. So anyways, I've rambled enough. Sorry about that. But yeah. No, you're good. No, I enjoyed every second of listening to you talk. I just had some questions about um, the bio part. When you talked about um, your um, uniqueness as far as, you know, people's perceptions of Miami, you grew up in Miami, and the perception of Cuban and Cuban-Americans in Miami, oh, they're going to be right-wing, they're anti-communist. Like, that's the common sort of, I guess, denominator that people always try to associate. How common is it, people, to have your story when you talk to other Cubans that um left the island for different reasons. Um, how common is that of a story? Um, it's not super common, uh, but it's becoming a little bit more common as younger people are looking at a futureless future in front of them, and the the lies that uh, their parents and grandparents believed about the U.S. Uh, you know, this thing the boys called the American assumption that you can genuinely get here work your ass off and, and one day be rich. That's not a reality. Our generation uh, can even uh, project in their minds. It's just, it's not possible. Um, it's the first generation in U.S. history to live, uh, to, to be expected to live worse lives than, than their parents. And uh, we've had this whole phenomenon that at the Institute, we call reproletarianization. In the, in the last uh, century, uh, you had the rise of the middle classes, you know, thanks to the threat uh, that was presented by uh, communism and the alternative world order that that presented for our workers. Thanks to the struggles that that we waged, which were led in the working class by the Communist Party and by other militant trade unions, uh, some of them uh, which were basically founded by the Communist Party, like the CIO. Um, and, and, and thanks to other reasons as well, like the uh, capacity to give crumbs to parts of the working class, thanks to the super profits that we extract from the super exploitation of the global south, we were able to develop a strong middle class. And it was basically the pride of, of the nation that we had a strong middle class. This has all gone down the wayside ever since the 70s, specifically this period where capitalism goes into crisis. The rates of profit, if you look at them statistically, they're just completely tumbling. It's almost as if someone with a, a big beard and long hair predicted this in his third <laughs> volume. Of but they're dropping and the capitalists are forced to make a decision. Well, if, if I can't make the rates of profit I did before, 
what are the routes that I can go? And there's primarily two routes. You either go abroad, um, take your factories abroad, your capital abroad, so that the labor uh, that you're, the, the, the wages that you're paying are a hell of a lot lower, and it saves in the cost of variable capital. You make more money uh, through that. Or um, you go to a hyper-financialization, which is what we've we've had since the 70s, specifically in the U.S. You know, uh, something like 95% of profits from the largest American companies are coming from stock buybacks, rents, and interest. And that's purely parasitical capital. That's not capital that's building factories, infrastructures. It's not building anything. It's just <laughs> making money hand over fist from money itself, not from building anything. So this reality has completely transformed our class. It's destroyed uh, the vast majority of the middle class. It's re-proletarianized it is the concept that we use. Um, and it's created a reality like the one that you have in Miami now, where a lot of these younger kids uh, who, you know, some of them have a college background, maybe four or five decades ago, they would have had comfortable, stable lives. They won't have that anymore. So a lot of those assumptions that are fed to them by their parents are falling through the wayside. And, you know, they might not be embracing communism right now, but they realize that the lies that they've been told about uh, capitalism aren't true, uh, that they're, they're lies and they're baseless. And, you know, you see this in statistics like the uh, from 18 to 35, that demographic in South Florida. Who do you think they voted for in 2020 over women? For Bernie Sanders. Mm -hmm. You know, who would have expected that? Would that have been something that could have happened in the 90s? Could that have happened in the early 2000s? No way. It's been the, the, the change in the objective conditions that has brought about an objectively revolutionary situation, which has allowed for slowly this spontaneously revolutionary and dissenting consciousness to arise in the mass of people. The problem is that's not enough. We need people organized. We need their spontaneous dissenting consciousness not to be so spontaneous, to be able to systematize and understand what it is that is causing the evils in their life, how it is that they can move forward. And we need them organized uh, so that they can fight back collectively and in a planned and, and disciplined and organized manner, because that's what history, as far back as you can go, shows us that is required in order for a revolution to succeed, for a new, a new class to take power over the state from an old class and radically transform all of the state's institutions, uh, the how things are produced and all of that. So that's the the way that I see it, at least, and the way that I formulated in the book is that we have everything there. Shit's fucked up. Uh, there's a crisis of legitimacy. You know, 80 to 90 percent of people distrust the media. They think the media is lying to them. 80 to 90 percent of people don't feel like their elected representatives represent them. Mm -hmm. So there's a crisis of, of legitimacy. The U.S. empire, along with the neocolonial imperialist order in general, is just crumbling. Uh, there's a new coup every month in Africa, overthrowing the neocolonial regime. Um, so you have all of this going on. All that's missing for us to overthrow this wretched order that we live in is a way to organize these people um, with a collective understanding of, of what is wrong and how to move forward and engage in that fight. And what's preventing this, the biggest fetter preventing this development, I think, is the purity fetch. I'm not going to really unpack that at all, but I, I will mention there's a work that kind of talks about the special period and this newer generation of Cubans. Uh, it's called Capitalism, God, and a Good Cigar. I think the writer is Lydia Chavez, and I want to shout out um, Lydia Chavez, and I also want to 
tell my listeners to go back to episode 12 and 17. We had Ramon Muñiz Sarmiento come on. He talked about the special period some. He was born in 87. So he remembers some about the special period before he moved to the States. But um, I know everybody, you know, it may be a different experience, but to kind of go to um, Carlos's point, I'm glad you mentioned that because um, that's a completely different perspective. You know, a lot of people don't even know what the special period is. You know, after the Soviet Union collapsed, that relationship between Cuba and the Soviet Union changed immensely. And um, that was, and some people argued, you know, did the special period even end, you know, at certain points because of just the dire situation um, when it comes to access to um, just basic needs. And and even now, um, there are issues with electricity, there's issues with just um, basic needs being met. Um, so, and a lot of this has to do with the United States. I mean, I mean, the sanctions are insane. And you talk a lot about um, how the West has been able to keep this, the global south down with just um, imposing all these arbitrary rules of um, it's warfare is what it is. And and they they basically dictate other people's economies, dictate other people's um, lives, lives and everything, their livelihood, because in the name of human rights, we're villainizing human beings by imposing anti-human rights um, ab abuses towards other people that we deem um, impure, as you mentioned. And there's just so many different things, you, different ways you can take that. Um, but your book is fascinating, but it, it took a lot for me. And I'm pretty, I'm not versed in Marxism per se. I, I'm familiar with it. Um, I'm not going to sit here and pretend I don't know anything about it. I mean, I'd be, bit, I'd be d disingenuous if I did that. But I don't know. I don't claim to be a Marxist. I don't claim to know a lot about Marx. But I have the, a general basis. I guess my question to you would be, it's well written, the book is. But how do you translate this message to people? I mean, we're talking about a country, I think it's 54% of the people have a sixth grade reading level in the United States. And so how do we explain terms like dialectical materialism, the dictatorship of the proletariat? How do we explain that stuff to everyday people? That's such a good question. And that's one that we've been tarrying with since the beginning of the Institute. And uh, the way that we approach this project of like elevating people's consciousness is as broad as possible. That old uh, uh, Malcolm X saying, by any means necessary, by any means necessary. That means if we got to do one minute TikToks, which has been the part of the Institute that, uh, you know, my brother from another mother, basically, Eddie Liger has, <laughs> I see. has led. He's brilliant. And when he we started the TikTok, when we had started the website and YouTube, and uh, he told me, hey, I'm going to hop on, on TikTok to do these uh, videos about Marxist theory and breaking things down at a very basic level and doing political analysis. I told him, you're crazy. And thank God he didn't listen to me because at that time it was just the dancing. Act. There was no political commentary going on there, but he revolutionized it. Um, this was at a time when uh, the control over the algorithms was still in the hands of the Chinese company. Um, and we just blew up through there. And that in many ways fed all the other parts of our project. It gave us the ability to develop a really good team. We have, you know, above something like around 60, um, uh, contributors. We have a board of directors and editors that, uh, helps a lot and does a, a, a quite a few different things. It helps with, uh, you know, book projects and uh, reviewing articles and all that stuff. And with our journal, 
of American Socialist Studies. Um, so that TikTok has, uh, part of the project has been like where we do that at a mass scale. And we, before the beginning of the special military operations in uh, 2022, I believe, yeah, um, that's, the years are just blending into each other, especially after COVID. Uh, but before the beginning of that, um, we had been able to build up nearly half a million followers on there. And we had videos regularly getting millions of, of views. Um, and then when the war started, we were, you know, attacking the, the narrative that was coming from the U.S. and NATO. And it corresponds with a time period where uh, control over the algorithms and content moderation switches from the Chinese to the American company. And we get banned. You know, uh, that big account got banned. Uh, we ended up making seven more accounts and they've they've gotten banned. A couple of them have gotten into the hundreds of thousands of followers. And um, we currently have one sitting around 50, I think, 50,000 followers. It hasn't been banned yet, but it's very likely that whenever the next hot thing comes out and we criticize it, we'll, we'll get banned. So, uh, But that's been one of the parts of the project where we've been breaking down just the basic concepts as much as possible, as well as the YouTube. Um, I've done quite a few videos. I, I mean, I did a video uh, showing the overlap of the dialectical materialist method of ascending from the abstract to the concrete uh, using the example of Bob Ross paintings. Yes. I don't know if you're familiar with Bob mm -hmm. Ross. Yeah, yeah, That was my thing when I was in high school. I wasn't uh, a very attentive student so I would put Bob Ross on during class and uh, I ended up uh, having this Bob Ross video suggested to me at some point uh, I, I think toward the end of last year and I was like oh my god this is a great example of of the method so I um, I, I, I was able to jump off of that um, video and, and, and show the overlaps and I think fundamentally a lot of the things like the outlook uh, dialectical materialism there are things that people already accept as common sense, but because their worldviews, so the collection of ideas that they have are incoherent without them knowing that there's incoherence, uh, they'll be really good with this common sense belief, but then this other one fully contradicts this one. So I always uh, give an example of a boxing judge. We wouldn't trust the judgment of a boxing judge that gets there on the 12th round and wants to pass judgment on the whole fight on the basis of the 12th round. Well, why? Well, he wasn't able to see, first of all, all the rounds. So he wasn't able to see it comprehensively. He wasn't able to see the interconnection between each round and he wasn't able to see the development of the fight, which is a central part in, in judging a fight. So what do you have there? You know, we need to see things in movement to, to understand it. We need to see, you know, some of the contradictions at play to understand it, how he might've won this round, but not this round. Uh, we need to see things in their interconnections to understand them and then we need to see things in order to judge them correctly from the standpoint of the whole that's all dialectical materialism is you know you can concretize a little more after that uh but that's what uh the foundation of the outlook is look at everything in its movement and in its interconnections and in its contradictions and from the standpoint of the whole and that's fully in contrast to the way that the bourgeois outlook that bourgeois philosophy approaches things it likes to separate everything from everything else you know, you have, of course, uh, with Descartes, the separation of mind and body. You have with bourgeois political economy, the separation of the individual and society. You mm -hmm. get your Robinson age. Binary. Um, those binaries, right? Unable to see things in, in contradictions, right? They can't even think through contradictions. They're deeply rooted in an Aristotelian logic that says where there's contradictions, there's uh, falsity. And that's why I start the book tracing back 
the sort of Greek traditions, two Greek traditions, the Iliadic with Parmenides and Zeno of Elia and the Heraclitan, uh, which gets then embodied in Hegel and Marxism, and the other one gets embodied in the rest of Western philosophy. And I say that uh, this purity fetish, this absence of dialectical thinking is in many ways rooted in these long patterns of, of these, these long worldviews and ways of approaching the question of truth that are deeply rooted in, in Western philosophy which seeks to separate things from the context in which they exist in, in order to so-called understand them, that things about truth in, in ways that uh, says no to contradictions, that is unable to think through uh, a, a truth in process, how things change and, and, and truth transforms, right? They're, the whole idea of universal, as I mentioned, is let's what's universal is that which exists in the same form, regardless of space and time. So that's fundamentally anti-dialectical. Um, and... What I've tried to do specifically in video stuff and video content that I make uh, is get the harder ideas that are in the books and make them bring them to the level of common sense and show people how they already accept them. Not that these are new ideas. These are ideas that they already accept mm -hmm. and uh, and that if they think through them and reflect on them a little longer, which is all really philosophy is reflecting on the worldviews, spontaneous worldviews and philosophies that we already have. If they do that, they'll realize that the best outlook for understanding the world is dialectical materialism, because it sees the world how it is. It's exchange, contradictions, interconnections, and from the standpoint of how the whole uh, provides meaning to the parts and how the parts provide meaning to the whole. And if you look at some of the leading studies in like um, psychology, right, uh, or or neuroscience, you know, studies trying to understand how it is that thinking is even possible, the conclusion that they've drawn has been one that Engels already drew uh, in the 1870s. And it's the same thing with evolutionary biology. Uh, Stephen Jay Gould once said that had we listened to Engels, our field would have been 100 years ahead. We wouldn't have had to waste 100 years in all these uh, gobbledygook before realizing that Engels was right about the, the role that labor played in the transition from ape to man, as he called it, and, and developing thinking. But in the field of, of, of neuroscience, Emergentism is is the you know the hot new intellectual commodity. And what does emergentism say? It says that well you can't you can neither think of thinking as a sort of disconnected spiritual entity, you know that sort of old school idealism. No one believes in it anymore. But also the the reductionism which sort of dominates the field is also it doesn't make much sense. Like work, what part of the brain can you point to and say this is you know when you're thinking about a cheeseburger, this is right here. It's it's this matter. That leads to it. What has been the conclusion of emergentism, which says that once you have this grouping of things into a whole, into its own totality, it develops qualities that you can't reduce to any of the parts nor to their amalgamation, right? So the the you know the sum of the parts, none of the qualities that are produced by the whole can be reduced to even the sum of the parts. The whole functioning as a whole develops new qualities. And this is something that Engels was already talking about in 1870. He says, we can crack into the brain as much as we want. Thinking is itself a product of that interaction and how that interaction as a whole uh, gives it, provides the conditions for a qualitative leap into this new sort of thing called thinking, which is always thinking matter, but thinking. And Marx already saw something similar with, with the development of capitalism, specifically industrial capitalism, brings into being for the first time in history a division of labor within the workshop mm -hmm. and what happens here he has this very uh, good example 
in the first volume of Capital, he says, you can get 12 people to work 12 hours. You can get one person to work, to work 12 hours for 12 days. And you can get 12 people in one factory to work 12 hours. It is statistically proven, scientifically provable that the 12 people working in one factory collectively for 12 hours will produce a hell of a lot more than the other two. They're working in terms of time the same amount, but there's an emergent property that comes about when they're um, when they're brought into a specific totality within uh, a, a workplace. So that's uh, that's another thing where like some of the most advanced sciences are just proving things that the Marxists have been saying since the middle of the last uh, century. And the concept of the dictatorship of the proletariat is is very simple. Um, and and what we have right now is under the guise of democracy, we have a rule in which the people that are in control are the people that own state institutions, the economy, civil institutions, all of that is governed in a way that represents the interests of the people that own. And working people know this. So they call themselves a democracy, but it's in reality a democracy for the rich, for the insignificant minority in society, as Lenin used to say, which means that for the vast majority of people, it's not experienced as a democracy, but as a dictatorship of capital. We turn that around and say, when working people come into power, we're not going to annihilate the rich. They're obviously still going to exist as, as human beings. They're still going to have their connections. They're still going to have some power, and they're still going to try to overthrow uh, any working class revolution that's successful. So for a period of time, we need this thing called the dictatorship of the proletariat, where working class people now in power use the state institutions to crush the uh, the will of the old order that wants to revert back to a time when exploitation and oppression and all these horrible things uh, we're still around because they were benefiting from it. So it's another word for that, for dictatorship of the proletariat. So dictatorship of the vast majority of people, working people, is democracy. You look at the etymology of democracy, demos, kratos, common people, not just people in general, common people, and power. Common people and power, that's all the dictatorship of the proletariat is. It's genuine democracy as we've never seen it before in history. Okay, we got... Oh, do you have about 25 minutes in you? Yeah, yeah. Okay, because uh, I know we've all got functions to go to, and um, I don't want to cut it short. And hopefully down the road, we maybe have you back on, because I'm telling you, I'm enjoying this like crazy. Um, I just love to play back the episodes and just learn myself along with the audience. And um, I know this episode 54 is not going to disappoint. So, again, we're talking about 25 more minutes. I want to get a clarification, or at least a Carlos Garrido definition, what do you define as the West? I think that's mm. a, a very important question just within the context of what you're describing, Marxism, in these terms. What is the West when we talk about Western Marxism? That's a really good question because you have that geographical term in front of the Marxism, right? And uh, it assumes that it's just the West. So by the way, but when I mean the West, I mean like, the 14% of the global population, which controlled the rest of the world basically since 1492, and that fancies itself now as the international community. So I'm talking, of course, of Western Europe, the US, um, you could throw Australia in there, and as of recent, you could throw, you could throw Japan in there as well. You know, um, It's not technically in the West geographically, but definitely forms part of the collective uh, West that benefits from neocolonialism and imperialism. Um, 
when I'm referring to Western Marxism, I'm referring specifically to a tendency within the socialist movement that in many ways could be traced back to, um, to the split in socialism that occurs at the onslaught of the First World War. So there's this big conference, Second International of Socialist uh, Parties from around the world. They decided that they weren't going to participate in the war, that they weren't going to send working class people to kill working class people for uh, in a rich man's war. Uh, and then what ends up happening is that the leading uh, party, the German Social Democratic Party of Germany, led by Karl Kautsky and others, um, it, it it folds and it basically buys into social chauvinism and, and social patriotism and it buys into the narrative of we have to defend the, the fatherland and it's very shallow uh, super patriotism, as, as Michael uh, Parenti would say, uh, and it uh, buys into the war. It sends working class people uh, to to war, it votes for war credits. Um, and since it was the leading party within the Second International, the vast majority of the parties said that too. Uh, interestingly enough, the U.S. Socialist Party of America didn't uh, do that. Uh, that's why you have the imprisonment of people like uh, Eugene Debs and, and Big Bill Hayward and a few others under the Espionage Act, which they've brought back, of course, for Chelsea Manning, for Julian Assange and others. Um, uh, the, the Russian party, of course, uh, didn't uh, vote in favor of the war. And that creates what Lenin called the split in socialism, you know, which so-called Marxists are going to go down the route of this very shallow understanding of class struggle. Uh, within their own nations uh, that doesn't connect the struggle of colonized peoples in the global south against imperialism to the struggle of the working class at home, um, and which Marxists are going to actually include those struggles, not as separate struggles that we have to support, but as our struggles too. And that's a tradition that um, that develops into the Third International, sometimes called Marxism-Leninism, and that's part of one of its central uh, foundations that for instance, the struggle that we have here, that our working class has here against our ruling elite, is not a different struggle from the one that uh, Gabon is 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 waging now against its neo-colonial overloads or that Niger is waging. It's the same struggle against the same capitalist class organized globally. Um, and that's the, the tradition that we're a part of. And connected to that are a whole host of different philosophical questions like uh, connected to that break, which is definitely political, is an understanding of Engels as someone that distorts Marxism. So uh, there's this thing that develops called the Engels debate, um, uh, the debate over the dialectics of nature, which is another deeply philosophical debate concerning whether the dialectics is something that applies to nature or just human societies. So you have these hosts of questions uh, that arise at the philosophical level as a reflection of these political uh, splits in uh, a socialism that cozies up and collaborates with the imperialist and a socialism that sees the struggle of the working classes at home as basically the same as uh, um, the struggle of colonized people to overthrow the yoke of colonialism, uh, neocolonialism, and really in general imperialism. Um, so when I refer to Western Marxism, I'm referring to that tradition, which includes a lot of thinkers, of course, from the West. Mm -hmm. um, but it includes thinkers from other parts of the world as well. Uh, and it also doesn't mean that there aren't Marxisms in the West that aren't. Uh, so, I mean, for me, Du Bois, an American thinker, of course, is the founder of American Marxism. He's the first person to show us that, you know, not only do we have this abstract thing called class struggle, but what are the specific forms that it's taken in our country? 
Well, it's been the Black freedom movement, the struggle against uh, racism, the struggle against various institutions, slavery, Jim Crow, uh, et cetera, et cetera. That has been the forefront of our class struggles. These are not separate identity struggles as like liberals like to talk about today. These are class struggles for the emancipation of black working people. And the lot of working people in general are in throwing um, their efforts behind those struggles as well and seeing them as, as, a, as a centerpiece of these struggles. So Du Bois is the father of American Marxism. I wouldn't consider him within the tradition of Western Marxism. Um, the same is true of, of Henry Winston, one of the greatest leaders of, of, of our communist party. The same is true of, of a wide array of other people, people in, in Britain who are definitely within the, uh, within the West. Uh, but, you know, J.D. Bernal, one of the most brilliant scientists of the 20th century, he was a member of the Communist Party. He was showing how it was that the dialectical materialist outlook is better um, for the sciences and can be more fruitful for, for scientific investigation. People like J.B.S. Haldane and the whole host of people within the West that uh, are a part of this other tradition. So. Uh, it uses geographical uh, denotations, but it cannot be reduced to it. Just because someone is in the West doesn't mean that they're a part of the Western Marxist tradition. And just because someone is in the global South doesn't mean that they can't be in their thinking a part of the Western Marxist tradition. That There's a, a central premise in your book that talks, um, it uses the, the name PMC, the professional managerial class. And... Um, Spearheading this professional managerial class of three central elements, the mainstream media, the media as we know it, uh, NGOs, and you also talk about academia, which we're yeah. both a part of. Um, I got one foot in, one foot out. <laughs> right yeah, now, yeah. I'm not sure if I'm going to go back in, but um, we, we both have ties to academia. And I think a lot of my um, listeners and viewers know that, even though I don't mention it a lot. I do it when it's relevant. But... Um, you talk about in the book how we need to move away from this class of people, the professional managerial left, to a worker class based left. Um, what does that look like in the United States, a worker class based left? What would that look like, I guess, the end result of that? Right. So that analysis is deeply rooted in this view of reproletarianization. And what happens is that uh, the part of the working class that was able to elevate itself in a, a, to the old Marxist term was bourgeoisify itself um, in the process of becoming a middle class was this the professionals and, and the managers, right? Um, and different forms of uh, white collar uh, workers. Um, and uh, I mean, I'm a, a center example of this process of reproletarianization. I'm about to finished my uh, PhD, as we were talking about, in the 60s, that would have guaranteed me an extremely stable lifestyle. It would have guaranteed me the white picket fence, two automobiles, the ability to have two and a half kids, um, a dog, all, all this shit that's tied to the American dream. Mm -hmm. Right now, what it guarantees me is poverty. <laughs> yeah. So the, the thing is that although the material conditions have changed, the social consciousness in many ways hasn't. So we have a PMC that has become central to leftist organizations, socialist organizations in the U.S., but their forms of relationality resemble more, again, how people relate to one another through NGOs, through the academy, through the diversity, equity, and inclusion departments, uh, through the managerial human resource departments, than it does like, you know, working class people having beers at a bar. You get what I'm saying? So... Um, 
it's that is a, a way of divorcing working class people from any form of socialist movement. And this is something that's not new. You know, Marx talked about it already with the first international, how, yes, we can have intellectuals and all of these people on board. They should be on board. They play an important role. But the centerpiece of any socialist movement should be the working class. Regular workers should be the centerpiece because that's what socialism, if not working class people coming to power and the people that produce being the people that control the state and how they produce and uh, and all these other details. So that's been one of the, the things that I think we have to figure out because you have, you know, at the Institute, one of our directors, Noah Krashy, uh, who's the one that developed the theory of reproletarianization. He's a working class carpenter. The man wakes up at four o'clock in the morning to read uh, the classics and to write, uh, gets to work at six o'clock, works until like three, and uh, then comes home and continues to work and then spends some time with his wife at night. It's what uh, Gramsci would have called an organic intellectual. Uh, he's a member of the Communist Party. He's convinced all of his co-workers, which were previously libertarians, about communism. Uh, but he knows that if he brings them, they're going to be like, what the hell is this? This is not what I imagined these things being. It just feels like an HR uh, department. Uh, and that's that's something that I think has to uh, has to change. Um, that doesn't mean that we're against organizing people within these sectors of, of society. I think that they also play an important role in doing that. If, I'd be self-loathing if, if I thought that, you know, <laughs> we don't at least play some role in the struggle. I think we do, but um, a lot of the things that we end up wanting to emphasize in this fight are things that don't fully overlap with uh, with the immediate needs of, of regular working class folks. Um, so that is, you know, something that I think has to change. And we're not the first ones in saying this. There's since this transition to a more middle class left has occurred. This has been something that, you know, leading Marxist scholars have been writing about in the U.S. from at least the late 70s. There's a part in the book towards the end, you talk, you make this um, juxtaposition with, I won't even call it a juxtaposition. You mentioned the subjective component and the objective component, the conditions. When we talk about this idea of socialism, um, you explain carefully how 60% of Americans live paycheck to paycheck. Uh, there are already objective realities to where, I mean, a revolution is is there for the taking. I mean, this everything is perfectly aligned. That I guess the question I have is more the subjective part. Um, I understand the tangibility of the objectivity, those um conditions that are already there economically, especially, um, even socioeconomically. But I go back to where you talk about the George Floyd, the 2020. How can anyone forget that point in history? It seems like everything's going on at the same time. Um, this is a free thinkers forum, Kiko's free thinkers forum. So we don't just go automatically conspiratorial route, but I feel like a lot of these events over time aren't necessarily organic. I think that they're mm -hmm. manufactured um, for different reasons by um, governments and everybody else. But for, for me, the George Floyd thing, I struggle with it when you talk about the way the sentiment was on the ground, the revolutionary sentiment, because I, I feel like it wasn't a revolutionary sentiment. I believe it was a reactionary sentiment based on the context of the moment. I don't think it was something that was, I never thought that there would be any sort of revolution as a result of that. Unfortunately, and I don't want to sound like a pessimist or a cynic or anything, it's just that 
it seemed like the same playbook over and over where there was an election happening. There was a, a virus all over the country at the time. There was so much going on at once. And I think people's heads were in different places. And a lot of this energy came from a certain part of the ruling class, the Democratic Party, I think. Um, but maybe I'm just wrong. Maybe there was revolutionary potential. And it just, you know, events happened to sort of just squash it like it always does. But I just felt like it was only because of, like, they hated Trump being in office. I think there were lots of factors that went into that and not necessarily because of the brutality inflicted upon George Floyd. I, I think um, I don't disagree with you. I definitely do agree that there was like NGOs and, you know, activists, organization based NGOs that uh, played a big role in this. When I'm referring to revolutionary potential, it's basically just the sheer fact that you know, those 25 million people in the streets, uh, right? Um, there's these activist organizations have a lot of money, but um, I don't know if they got 25 million people ready to come out. So what I saw in the various places in the Midwest and rural Midwest was working class people, a lot of the times white working class people who had a deep anger at what happened Um and who who genuinely felt we've said this a few times like they killed one of us it was never that mentality like oh they just killed a black guy no they killed one of us they killed an american working class person um and it was it was a pain that was inflicted on all of us and that's what i think shows a tremendous revolutionary potential because historically what has prevented the unity of our class has been racism and various forms of bigotry. You know, the, the ruling class has to divide us in order to conquer us. That's every ruling class has known that. You know, you get that in uh, James Madison's Federalist Ten. You know, the, he, he says the the very the most basic fracturing of society and factions that develop are around the property question: those who own and those who don't. These are the factions we should avoid, and we avoid them by factionalizing even more the people who want to antagonize the people who own. So. They want to separate us as much as possible. Racism was the centerpiece. Uh, and after the civil rights movement, the minds of a whole lot of Americans change. Uh, you're not going to get, even in the most uh, old school, backward parts of the Midwest or the South, if you go up to a white worker, yeah, they might have some stereotypical ideas about Black people. But if you tell them, hey, do you want to organize with your coworker who's Black against the boss? They're not going to be like, no, I don't want to do that because he's Black. That's absurd. So that's what I'm talking about. There's been a, a change in social consciousness. And when I saw people in the street, that is a revolutionary potential in the sense that people are ready to go out to do something. And they see themselves as a people more than ever. This is what at the Institute we call the American trajectory, uh, a, a plurality of different peoples coming to be while still different in some ways, coming to see themselves as a people. And I saw that at play in those protests where, again, it was as if they killed one of us. And, you know, in re if you look at the statistics, the, the police are not just killing black people. They're killing all sorts of people. Mm -hmm. They're killing poor people in general. They're killing white people, Hispanics. They're killing everyone. Why? Because the police is the, in the, the instrument of coercion, uh, the, the most dictatorial uh, and violent instrument of the capitalist class to defend its, uh, its property interests. That's what it's the, as Lenin used to call them, the armed bodies of men of the state, of the capitalist state. 
So they attack everyone indiscriminately. Um, they might have their own individual biases against uh, black and brown people. That's certainly true, but they attack everyone. Uh, so I think it was revolutionary in that sense. And it had these contradictions at play where it was both, you know, you had some of that uh, that you were mentioning and uh, that ended up shifting a lot of the energies towards just electing uh, Jim Crow Joe. Um, and then you had this genuine potential that we could have tapped into and we didn't because we lack, you know, part of the subjective factor is not just consciousness. It's the organizations that can structure consciousness in working class institutions. We lack those. We lack those. And so it was very easy for all of the energy to just get ciphered into the Democratic Party or just turn into, uh, you know, people refraining from everything or just becoming apolitical or something. I was walking yesterday and I was thinking about our interview and just what we would be talking about. And I was thinking about this idea of revolution. We, we've talked about it on the forum quite a few times, you know, in different junctures. But I was just walking around yesterday. I live outside of Nashville, Tennessee. I'm born and raised in a suburb called Franklin, Tennessee. A lot of people probably know it. Miley Cyrus, there's a lot of people, Taylor Swift, that ties to the area. And I live south of that area now, but I'm walking along the store and I just see people just operating just like nothing's going on. Gas isn't expensive. Uh, people aren't living paycheck to paycheck. It's like they're just living in a simulation almost. I don't know if they're escaping that reality. I don't know if it is because of suburbia, but I feel like there's something underneath that. There has to be something underneath the facet, you know, of just that illusion of stability, that illusion of the white picket fences and everything else. I was at an Ed Sheeran concert last month, 73,000 people sold out at Nissan Stadium. And I'm not even going to lie. I was there, my wife and kids went. They really wanted to go more so than myself. I really didn't want to go. And I have to say this, the worst feeling I ever had going to a concert is because my mind wasn't there for the musical spectacle. It was there. I was just thinking about what if we had people that care this much about a revolution or they care this much about um, their livelihood when it came to paycheck to paycheck? Why is it that we can watch sporting events all day and all night and it keeps people's attention so strongly? But when we talk about things that are so raw and dear to us, you would think that the idea of revolution in these types of times would be an easily accomplishment. But maybe it's not so easy because of you know, all these different obstacles with um, mainstream media and everything else. I don't know. What What are your views on that? Yeah, man, those are those are tough questions. And, you know, we've had two approaches. One of them has been like with entertainment. I, I do definitely see that there's a way in which it's used as a distraction that people that get home, they're tired from work. Who the hell is going to think about revolution when you can just turn on the TV and have some fun? Right. Um one of the things we try to do, we've been incorporating it in our last last few broadcasts, is a sports segment that talks about issues in various uh, in various sports um, and how various athletes are being exploited, and and that from the dynamic of how it's happening within the sports, uh, how it looks and how it connects to society in general, um, and that's a way to sort of uh, bring people because there's issues within all of these industries. You know, you had Taylor Swift come out the other day and talk about how she doesn't own none of her stuff, and you know these stockholders and, and shareholders are getting filthy rich from her musing. She has no control over it, right? That's a great sort of kernel that we can use and to, to bring people to these other areas. So that's one thing. 
uh, we can do. Another thing is that we have to realize for a very long time the question as to why haven't we had a revolution in the West when everything is so fucked up um, has usually uh, had various answers. One of them is racism, which I think is true. Uh, another one is ideology. Um, so people buy into consumerism and buy into all of these uh, different forms of assumptions that are uh, systematically pumped out so that people whose interests are not within the established order end up aligning them and consenting to the established order. And there's some of that. But I really like the perspective that um, that the sociologist, Vivek Shiver, we've talked to him before on the channel. He's a, a DSAer. There's a lot of things I disagree with him on. But in, in this area, uh, I think he's right, which is that we cannot undermine um, the role of resignation. A lot of people, it's not that they're convinced or that they're consenting, but they're resigning because they know in many cases what ends, what what fighting back entails. Uh, well, fighting back entails means that you can get fired, you know, and, and Amazon and any of the major um, uh, companies in the country, if they catch you trying to unionize, they're going to fire you. And they're going to, you know, uh, put you in a position that's going to be hard to get a good job afterwards. Uh, so it's very easy to um, to just uh, uh, participate in resignation when those are the odds. You know, now there's there's Starbucks stores where people organize, they vote in favor of forming a union, and then the Starbucks uh, store shuts down and reopens in another location, gets a whole new batch of employees. So there's all these tactics. And what does getting fired mean in our society? It means going hungry, not being able to figure out how to pay rent, not being, you know, so uh, in, in many ways, um, it's a difficult job that we have, which is showing people why, in spite of all of those outcomes, it will still be worth it to participate in this fight. And it doesn't mean that you can't enjoy your Ed Sheeran or, or Taylor Swift concert or your sports. Um, we definitely shouldn't be part of, you know, this left that just sort of condemns everything that working people enjoy in, in, in their everyday life. We should find places of commonality and, and work from there. You know, the Communist Party back in the day, they had like softball teams in Cleveland and stuff that they would and then bowling teams and all that and, and um, different church segments of the party that would go into churches and, and talk. to. So we got to be in civil society, be in, at, at the spots where people are going to have fun and socializing with others um, and, and have a, a, a place there, you know, um, not just look at things from a more cynical perspective, even though that perspective is important to provide nuance. Uh, so uh, it's, it's, it's got to be tough, but I think that the conditions are getting more difficult and they're going to continue to intensify as the geopolitical situation develops, uh, which is very clearly developing into a new world that's breaking through the 1492 uh, world order of colonialism, imperialism, and, and neocolonialism as of the last uh, century and, and a bit. Um, and since the U.S. is the centerpiece of this world order as of the last 70 years, it's going to affect us tremendously. Um, you're going to have people making connections in various ways. And our job is going to be in meeting people where they're at, learning from working people. That's something that is always forgotten by this PMC left. You know, they feel like they're only educators. And every good educator knows that in order to properly teach or to properly lead, you have to learn. You have to learn and, and adjust yourself to where it is that your students are at. And in this case, it's adjust yourself to the consciousness of the different forms 
that working class people are being dissatisfied by the existing order and understand on the basis of their common sense, what are the rational kernels that you can then get and rearticulate towards where you need them to go, where they should go because of their interests as, as working class people, their long-term interests, which is socialism. So um, there's various ways to do this. There's no one size fits all. You can't have a copy paste approach. If you're trying to organize in New York, the tactics you're going to use there have to look different than if you're organizing in Iowa. That's just the truth of the matter. You know, we're not a homogenous people in the sense of we're not, uh, we don't have internal uniformity. We have internal pluralities. We're heterogeneous in terms of how we exist as a whole. And that requires different strategies, uh, different tactics, I mean, different approaches. Um, and, and, and being able to be creative, uh, being able to get this outlook that we have and, and the place where we want to go and what we want to do in our critique and adjust it to the individuals and groups that we're engaging with at the moment. Um, but yeah, that that temptation of falling back onto entertainment and, and sports and just you know, if if I could just have this little uh, this little rise in, in my dopamine that's provided by these these distractions, I'm good. I don't need anything else. It's an obstacle, um, but you know, we we got to be we got to be smart and and learn how to adjust ourselves around any and all obstacles that are thrown our way. Carlos, I got one final question for you and. I don't know if you followed that episodes before, but we don't do a lot of this. Like we don't do any derivative shit. Like I, I'm very aware of like all these different um, YouTube outlets and stuff. But I gotta say, from the forum to you, um, you have a hundred percent respect from us. Um, I love it that you focus a lot on the educational aspects, and you really don't get into the Twitter wars and all that shit. Um, which leads me to a question I want to ask because the U.S. left is. I mean, you explained it really well in your book. I mean, it's a fucking joke that we call this. I mean, the U.S. left is honestly not a left at all. I mean, if you go anywhere in the world, I mean, it's a joke. I mean, we don't have universal health care. We don't have universal public education. I mean, you do until you get until you graduate high school. And then it's like, oh, you got to pay a bunch of money. Kiko's $155,000 in debt, you know, went to public school after secondary school. So why has he got that kind of debt on him? You know, and I bet a lot of people are wondering. But you have people in Congress, all of them have socialized medicine. Um, they yeah. break a leg. They can't think half the time with their brain or they fall down the flight of stairs or they freeze on the screen. And they can get taken care of just fine. But they don't want the rest of us to have those services that they have, basic needs. But this Twitter war stuff really scares me. And so I'm had to be strategic who I want on the show. There's so many rivalries. Like, what's the danger of this? And what is going to happen with the U.S. left if this continues with just all these different echo chambers within the so-called left on Twitter, especially? Like, it's absolutely, it's so toxic. I can't even post on there. I won't post on there. Yeah. Well, um, I'll just say this. It's when we started, um, three some years ago, we weren't as we are now on social media. We were buying into the what we called the poke the bear strategy and just engaging in a very stupid form. And uh, thankfully, in the process of growing and bringing in new people, we've been able to professionalize and try to be above all of that stuff. And whenever there's a controversy that comes up, if we end up commenting on it, it's always from the realm of ideas and not 
uh, picking on people or attacking people, but attacking ideas and always being open to people changing. But yeah, I mean, uh, on one side, the battle in social media for the, you know, the struggle of ideas, the ideological struggle in social media is is completely necessary in our era. People are spending seven to eight hours on their phone, and it has become one of the most relevant ideological fields of 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 battles. Um, on the other side, it's so tremendously insular because of how it's set up, and it's set up obviously by the people who own, who don't benefit from, you know, a more healthy algorithm and, and a more healthy form of relationality between groups. It's so incredibly insular, and it leads so easily to this mindset that if everyone doesn't agree with my checklist politics, I'm going <laughs> to condemn them forever. And that's the purity fetish, you know, if they're not pure from the standpoint of what I think is pure, um, I'm going to condemn them. And uh, it's hard, but I, I think that the approach that we have taken uh, has allowed us to have in our audience people from uh, that are up, on one side a part of our audience, but also parts of various different audiences, some of which are in contradictions with each other. They relate themselves quite well when they're in our audience because we try to focus on the substantive uh, issues. Um, we don't feed into division. And whenever we talk about a, a divisive issue, we always try to premise it in a way that doesn't condemn the people that are not uh, on our side of things. Sometimes we fail um, and we let our emotions get in the way. You know, we're only human. But um, we, we, uh, we, we try to play things in a way that sees the potential uh, for people changing and adjusting. And if we're wrong, for us changing. That's something that I think is very important. Not only do you have political immaturity, but a lot of personal immaturity in these groups that are fostered by these, you know, these people that are terminally online. And, um, you know, how do you how do you even go through life if you're only engaging with people who agree with you 100 percent on everything? It's just impossible. It's impossible to organize in that form. And the reason why, you know, someone like Chris Smalls was successful in organizing Staten Island uh, which is known as Trump Island, was because he put all that bullshit aside. He said, look, we're both workers in Amazon. We both have the same struggle here. Let's fight together. And, you know, that I'll, I'll take uh, one Chris Smalls over 100 people online that are just bickering with, with each other. And so we have to fight the fight uh, within social media, uh, the fight of ideas within there. We should try to navigate it in a way that does not antagonize people who we think are well-meaning there's some people who are very clearly wreckers that all they ever do is just criticize and criticize and criticize um those but there's a lot of people that are just confused they're just coming into it they don't know how the playing field looks yet and they're bouncing around and you know those people's minds and hearts could be changed and but we should always remember that you know we can have every twitter member follow the midwestern marks uh the YouTube, Twitter, Instagram account or whatever, we still won't have a revolution. We got to organize people in person. We got to organize our neighbors, our communities, our coworkers, our shop floors. And out of that organization, out of those discussions taking form in some form of a party or, or a new institution, I don't know, uh, just because it's been a party in the past that has worked doesn't mean that today something like a network of coalitions of different groups working on the ground couldn't work. I don't know. Um, we have to be open to whatever ends up working in our era and bringing our class to power. But 
Um, so yeah, that, that'd be my response. Try to be, a lot of these people talk the way they do online because they're not in person. And if you try to engage online as a viewer in front of someone, I find that that usually helps, you know, because I've met these sorts of people in person and the way that they act online is not at all how they act in person. They might be able to disagree with you, but they're not going to be calling you a fascist, you know, because you don't think the U.S. is reducible to settler colonialism or something in person. Right. So um, that'll be that's that's a good tip that I always try to approach things through. And we also have our our idols, you know, our people who we seem to emulate um for for us uh someone like henry winston is you know the top of the line uh for me as a cuban you know people like fidel and Che as well so when whenever these sorts of discussions come up i always try to think like how would these idols of mine uh, approach these issues would they be you know cracking jokes and, and making disrespectful statements and condemning people in in ways that are not very professional or mature or would they try to take the high road and figure out maybe if the people, the person I'm talking to won't accept the ideas, the people following them might have their minds changed depending on how I, I approach things. So that's been the way that we've tried to approach. But again, it's, we had to develop into that. It wasn't how we came into being. And I, in many ways, can't blame people who, who are there because we were there. And uh, if we can play a role in not just changing their minds, but changing how they interact with other people as well. Um, I think that's something that we always try to keep in mind and, and try to emphasize when when we're on streams or whatever. Well, Carlos, soon to be Dr. Carlos Garrido, let's um, try to do a part two in December, if you all agree with that, because um, this has been a wonderful episode 54. And I knew it was going to be a great dynamic episode. There's so many more questions I have about um, Marxism. We, we've had Jay Carrico on three times. And um, Jay's a little bit more versed in the terminology, and Jay's done a good job explaining things as alongside yourself. But that's the purpose. Like a lot of the people that I'm introducing this stuff to, they may not have listened to any sort of a political podcast um, before. But the whole point is to sort of get people to bring their walls down, even with politics. You know, any sort of issue that you come from a certain like upbringing that's like more uptight and you can't talk about these issues, these subjects. The whole point of the forum is to introduce this, especially to people who may not have that exposure or comfort level in the first place to talk about race or sexuality or politics, anything that has been deemed, okay, this is an obstacle. You don't talk about it. You just, you do everything else. We bleed red when you do everything else. Like we don't talk about those things. No, we do the opposite here. We're all about bringing um, different types of people on. Tomorrow we have someone on this running for president of the United States as a libertarian, completely about the free market. But we even not engage those ideas. And we there's some commonality even with people that we disagree with on a lot of things. And um, it's all about engaging people. We can't just write people off. And so... Um, I appreciate again from me to you just um, your educational forum known as the, the Midwestern Marx Institute and just a lot of the great literature that um, you all have produced um, over your, your recent history. And so I wish you continued success with that. Um, you and your co-workers there, Eddie and everyone else, the rest of the crew, Noah. And I just wanted to ask you, Ardane, and find out what you, ha you have for my audience before you leave today. 
Um, well, it's it's been a pleasure, an incredibly enjoyable uh, conversation, and I'd be happy to come back on whenever. Um, I, I think the approach that you're taking is phenomenal, cracking into new audiences. It's so important, and it's it's one of the biggest flaws in the left. They just love talking to themselves and the <laughs> social club more than a, a way of engaging in politics, which requires engaging with people we disagree with. Um, so, uh, yeah, I, uh, I'd i say, you know, check out our, our work on social media. We're at uh, Marks Midwest on Twitter and then Midwestern Marks everywhere else, Instagram, uh, YouTube, Facebook, um, TikTok as well. Uh, and uh, yeah, check out our publishing press. We're putting out books. Uh, we're trying to put them out on a bi-monthly uh, basis. We have a bunch of manuscripts that we're working with, but the last one that uh, we came out with was from one of our editorial counselors, The Outcome of Classical German Philosophy, which is a really lucid commentary on one of the most important philosophical texts that uh, Frederick Engels ever writes concerning the um, the inspirations, the philosophical inspirations behind Marxism, tracing them uh, back to how they take some some parts of G.W. Hegel and some parts of Ludwig Feuerbach and uh, leave some other parts behind and take it forward into a new, a radically new world outlook. Um, so yeah, check out our publishing press, our, our our website. We're constantly putting articles up. Our our YouTube. We have anywhere from four to five broadcasts weekly, interviews, all all sorts of stuff. And um, yeah, that's all. And oh, and now we're doing classes as well. We have a, a Marxism school that we've been running. Uh, we've ran three classes. I am teaching one that's about to end on Marxism and the history of Western philosophy. Noah just taught one on the basics of Marxism, which is uh, the only one that we've done uh, live stream as well. You can go back and watch those. And uh, Professor Danny Shaw, who, who teaches at City University, New York, he's doing one on uh, reformer revolutions and on the Marxist view of revolutions past. Um, he's covering, you know, the Haitian Revolution in 1804, the Paris Commune, the Russian Revolution, the Chinese, the Cuban, the Nicaraguan Revolution. So it's an incredibly uh, broad, but yet um, very, very well detailed uh, class. And um, so, yeah, look out for that. We'll probably have a new class uh, up for, for signups pretty soon. They usually last uh, eight to 10 weeks. Um, and they're, you know, as professional and, and university style as you can get, but within the context of an outlook that represents working people and not, you know, the ruling elite. But yeah, that'll be all. Thank you. I know my audience will appreciate that because I know some audience members have taken courses with y'all at the Midwestern Marx Institute. So I just want to say again, thanks uh, to you, Carlos, and we're going to link all your information in our description, the episode description. Uh, this has been a wonderful episode 54, and we can't wait to have you back on in December, possibly. Likewise, brother. Thank you so much again for, for having me on. Beautiful people. Enjoy your day. We have 20 to 25 guests lined up between now and end of October. So um, look forward to more dynamic conversations, international community, domestic community. Have a great day and we'll talk soon. Cheers to everyone.